All right, let me invite you to turn in your worship guide to page three for the reading of Scripture. Today's reading uh, continues this bit of a uh, excursus that we've been on looking at this subject of preparing for worship, of how to experience the power of God in our lives. And I'm excited to bring to you some reflections from the passage that I'm about to read. This is, in my personal opinion, one of the most difficult passages in the scripture to understand. But in my preparations, I feel like the Lord has uh, unfolded it for me in a, in a fairly fresh way. So I am excited to get into that with you together. Would you listen now with open ears as I read from this, the book that we love? But now go, this is God speaking, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people, for if a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he'd gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Thus, the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, 
from every other people on the face of the earth. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord God, we come to this time and we sit under these words. And Lord, uh, I recognize that uh, for most of us, or perhaps all of us, these are very strange words. Lord, the, uh, the story that has just been read, uh, the words that we've just considered um, to many, if not all of us, are very strange or very different from our own experience. Some of us have very deep questions as to whether uh, these words represent history, to whether you're even real, uh, and if you are, who you are. What is it that you think? How do you work in this world? And how are you at work in our own lives? And Lord, I recognize further that some of us have listened to these words, uh, and we are in a good place uh, in our lives. Uh, our bodies are well. Our bank accounts are healthy. Um, our kids are doing well. Others of us here, uh, our lives could not be further from the truth. Some of us come here in crisis. Others of us come here with depression, with sickness, uh, with strife. Uh, some of us come in here having believed in you for a long time and, and still believing in you. Others of us come in here with all sorts of doubts about you, with all sorts of questions, some of us even uh, with cynicism regarding you. And I pray, Lord, that whatever place we find ourselves in, whether we come here uh, with much celebration, with much joy, or whether we come here dealing with all kinds of sorrow and anxiety and depression and grief, whether we come here with much faith or with many doubts, I pray that you would give us grace to see that in the way that matters the most, we all have ultimately come here the same. We've all come in here with a need for you, a need to know you, a need to hear from you afresh, a need to be changed by you. And I pray that your presence would be with us today. I pray that you would show us how you have worked and addressed our deepest need in the person and work of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning and welcome. Really delighted to be speaking to you today uh, from this very strange chapter of Holy Scripture. So I want to just set the stage and tell you uh, that uh, on any given Sunday here at Ironworks, we have, and I, I happen to know, we have folks from fairly wide spectrum of belief uh, in God in general and then in belief in Christian God. Uh, we have folks that come uh, on occasion who don't know what they think about God, some even that come that uh, explicitly do not believe as we do. So if you're here thinking, man, I am really out of place, you're probably not. Um, and, and more than that, uh, some of you here today are saying, you know, I don't 
feel God at work in my life. Some of you are saying that as someone who identifies as a Christian. Others of you who do not identify as a Christian, you're saying that as well. So see, we're all in the same situation. Uh, If you are a Christian or if you become a Christian, I will tell you that it is my pastoral experience that even as a Christian that you will have seasons where you feel God's presence powerfully And then you will have seasons that would properly be described as darkness and as loneliness when it comes to knowing and experiencing God. And that's, uh, we've been, I'm kind of preaching in response to a study we conducted this summer, and that was something highlighted in the study where a critical number of you said, I am not experiencing God's presence and his power in my life at the moment. And so I wanted to bring to you this word because I think this word gives us some of the most helpful guidance that Scripture can offer for what to do, how to process being in a place where you do not experience God's presence, whether you do not feel his presence, whether you do not believe that he is involved in your circumstance, what to do about that, how to think about it, how did people in the Bible respond to that. This is one of the most, I think, incredible treatments of this subject that I have ever read, and I'm excited to get into it with you. So I want to walk through it with you briefly, making some observations along the way. Now, we are coming into the middle of what might be properly described as a saga, okay? So I'm going to try to catch you up, give you the cliff notes on what's happening Uh, Our church looked at the story of the Exodus in our previous sermon series. This kind of picks up on that point quite a bit further down the road. Uh, God, through his servant Moses, has rescued the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt. They've come out of Egypt. They've experienced miracles and salvation from uh, military foes such as never been experienced before in the history of the world. Uh, They are now on their own. Moses goes up the mountain and has this incredibly profound experience where God himself writes on tablets of stone what has now become known as the Ten Commandments. Okay, so this is, you know, when it comes to, in the Bible, experiences with God himself. In the Old Testament, I mean, this is the cream of the crop, right? Uh, God physically writes these commands, right? Moses is coming down with the tablets of stone. He has had the most profound religious experience to date as he has uh, communicated with God personally. And he comes down to this uproar that's going on inside of the, uh, the camp of the people of Israel. And at first, Joshua, who's kind of attending Moses, who's serving as an assistant, he's saying, what is going on? Are we being attacked? And then Moses says, it's not the sound of war, but it's the sound of dancing. You know, dancing, what is, what is going on here? Is it a rave? What's happening here in Israel? So they go down there, and what they find is that the people uh, had effectively given up on Moses. See, Moses was up on the mountain for quite some time, and they began to lose confidence that he was coming back. And they said, you know, we don't know what's happened to Moses. We're on our own. We need a God to rescue us. And they say to Aaron, would you, would you create a God for us? Because we're out here on our own. And Aaron says, sure, no problem. 
right? Wasn't <laughs> this guy would become the leader of uh, the priests of Israel? Um, we'll talk about that another time. But he says, sure, no problem. That sounds like a great idea. So he says, give me your gold, take off your jewelry, and I will fashion it uh, for you. And so they do that. He fashions it into a golden calf. Uh, and then the people throw this big kind of worship celebration fest, a lot of drunkenness. It would uh, probably, uh, other things going on where they're just saying, we, this, this creation is the God who has rescued us. From, from Israel, and we are going to worship him. And you can probably appreciate how devastating this would have been to Moses, whose single aim was to connect people with God, right? And he had seen all this progress made, right? And then he goes up the mountain and has this incredibly profound experience. And he comes down the mountain holding the tablets Right? engraved by the finger of God himself, and he sees that effectively the people he was trying to leave have gone off and have rejected this altogether. And it's interesting because he's so mad about it, he's so furious about it, that he takes you know, these tablets that are profoundly holy and he throws them on the ground and breaks them in half. Right? It's what happens. And uh, God responds to this and he says, Moses... Um, I'm not going with you anymore. That's uh, verse 34 of chapter 32. He says, um, I, I can't go with you because this people despises me so much and my holiness is such that if I go with you, that it's not going to end well for them, that I will consume them on the way. So I'm going to give you an angel. You guys go. I'm no longer going with you. And this is the narrative that happens in response that I want to point out. You know, this may seem really foreign and really strange to you. I mean, you know, I have not met many of you that have fashioned golden calves out of jewelry. You know, I don't know of any YouTube channel that covers this kind of thing happening. Um, but I would suggest to you that it's actually probably more similar to things than you experience than you might appreciate, right? What's basically happening is this. Moses has an absolutely profound relationship with God. The people of Israel have a profound relationship with God as he's with them, his presence is with them. They have an experience of rejecting him very strongly. And then he says, I'm withdrawing my presence from you. you, you I still want you to do what I've said. Go, go to Israel, go occupy this good land. I'm just not going with you. And the passage will go on, I think, to help put some more skin on this uh, situation because um, if you look at verse 7, it says, you know, Moses used to go out to the tent of meeting and he used to speak to God face to face as a man talks to his friend. And uh, he then has this encounter with God that we'll talk, probably spend the bulk of our time on. Um, where he's asking for God to show him his glory. What's going on here? Answer, God used to talk to Moses face to face, past tense. No longer. That's what's happening. He used to speak to Moses as a man speaks to his friend. He used to enjoy a certain vibrancy of connection with God, and then it stops. That is the situation that Moses is experiencing um, and some of you perhaps can relate to that, right? I think that 
um, some of you who responded to this uh, study that we did, I have no doubt I've heard some of your stories where you would say, you would say I, I haven't in my past experienced God's power and his presence in my life. And then today you're saying, I'm not experiencing that anymore. Well, that's pretty much uh, similar to Moses. And then what I want to do is, is try to unpack this conversation that takes place in verse 12. I wanted to give you the full context as best as I can, right? God's with Israel. He's with Moses. They reject him. Uh, and then he says, I'm no longer going to be with you. Uh, that would not end well, but I still want you to go um, do what you're going to do. And this is the conversation that results. So let's pick it up in verse 12. Moses, looking at the prospect of going to this land of blessing, right, this land of wealth, this land where you don't have to worry about where your next meal is coming from. That's the idea, by the way, behind flowing with milk and honey. Translated means going to a place of blessing, right? You know, and in America, the, the, the version that this takes is retiring at age 40, right? Of doing so well financially, of making so many good investment decisions, right? That you can go off to a sailboat, you know, order Uber Eats for the rest of your life, okay? And not have to worry about anything. That's, that is the land of milk and honey, right? So now you can just refer to it that way. You can talk to your financial advisor and say, financial advisor, I want the land of milk and honey. And they'll know what you're talking about. Okay, that is what they were doing. And God says, look, I still want you to go there. I'm just not going to go with you. And this is Moses' response to that. He says uh, in um, verse 12, he says, you've told me to bring this people up, yet you have not let me know whom you will send with me. See, God had promised an angel. He said, I will send an angel with you right, who will help you. And Moses says, well, you haven't told me whom you're going to send. Um, and he says uh, in verse 15, he says, if your presence will not go with me, then do not bring us up from here. And friends, I will tell you that uh, what Moses is doing um, and what it will happen is Moses, by all accounts, is acting profoundly audaciously as he communicates to God. God has just declared himself to be holy. He's just had this experience. Moses has just smashed the tablets on the ground, right? God says, look, I'm gonna let you go. I'm gonna let you have the land. I'm just not gonna go with you because that, that would not end well for people. And Moses says, no, I refuse to receive that. And I want you to think about how audacious that is on the face of it, right? Moses looks... In, you know, at, at the word of God, he looks at the command of God and he says, no, I will not. I will not go up unless your presence goes with me. And it's interesting because uh, it doesn't come across in English all that well. Uh, but let me read it to you and try to point it out um, that uh, will help you appreciate what's happening. Um, he says, my presence will go with you singular, Moses, and I will give you rest. And um, Moses says to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us, plural, up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, comma, I and your people? 
You see what's happening is, um, and this is brought out a little bit more if you read earlier on in verse chapter 32, that God is saying, look, Moses, you're okay. The people, I, I'm not going with them anymore. And Moses refuses that arrangement. He's saying, no, I, it's not good enough that you go with me. You need to go with us. And it's interesting because in verse 17, uh, the Lord responds. He gives in effectively to Moses' demand. And I want, I want you to ponder this because this is, I think, one of the absolute keys that you must get a hold of if you, whether you believe in Christianity or not, or you, you do, but you haven't experienced God's power in a long time, this is one of the absolute keys that you must get a hold of, and that's this. God delights in this kind of audacity. Right? He delights in it. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, says, if you're going to please God, you must believe that he exists. That's called faith, right? Doesn't stop there. And secondly, you must believe that he rewards people who seek him diligently. What does it mean to seek him diligently? It means this passage. It means refusing to live a life apart from his presence and power. Right? That was what Moses was doing. He said, I refuse to live a life without your presence and power. And I will tell you, ladies and gentlemen, that God delights in that kind of perspective. He delights in that kind of perspective. Jesus would say uh, towards the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation uh, to a church, he says, you know, you are neither hot nor cold. You're lukewarm. And, you know, if, if, it's kind of true, right, that uh, if you want a beverage, right, you want either a cold beer, right, or a hot cup of tea. You don't want something lukewarm, right? If you want, you know, lukewarm is, is no fun, right? But um, in the same way, Jesus is saying, look, I want you to be passionate for me. I want you to seek me diligently. And he'll say, you will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. And what's uh, especially profound is God responds to Moses. He says, I will go with you. And then Moses ups the ante and he says, please show me your glory. And what's about to uh, happen in the next couple of verses has puzzled commentators throughout the history of Christianity. And you are so deeply blessed that I will now solve this for you. Okay, right? Um, I have sent a letter to the Pope's office to help you know, him understand this. But uh, in all seriousness, th this is a profoundly mysterious, but I do want to try to at least share with you what I have observed and what I hope will be of some help to you. What's going on here? Well, Moses has just declared to God, no, I will not go with you. I will not go. Do not send me unless your presence will go with me. And God uh, concedes in verse 17, he says, I will do that. And then Moses says, please show me your glory. What is going on here? Well, this is what I'm going to suggest to you. You see, in verse 7 and following, it says that Moses used to speak to God face to face as a man speaks with his friend. Right? The implication being used to. He no longer does. God is now distant. Right? God is not communicating to him on that level. He's now separated. And when Moses says, please show me your glory, what he's doing is he's saying, 
I want in again. I don't want to be on the outside. I don't even want to be halfway on the outside. I want in. Right? This word face, by the way, panim, in Hebrew, it's the same word used in the paragraph of verse 7 uh, as in um, the conversation taking place in verse 17 and following. And God says uh, something very uh, perplexing in response to this. He says, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim to you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy to whom I show mercy. And he said, but you cannot see my face and live, for man shall not see me and live. And then he gets into this whole situation where he says, I'm going to cover you in the rock so that you are not consumed when I pass by. What's going on with that? Well, at a basic level, at a basic level, I want to focus your attention on verse 19. He says, you want to see my glory? You want to see my face? Okay. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to pass before you and proclaim to you my name. And then he says this that will be picked up on by the Apostle Paul in the ninth chapter of Romans where he says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I show mercy. And friends, what, what is going on there? We weren't even talking about that. We weren't even talking about grace and mercy. We were talking about your glory, God. We were talking about your countenance, your image, you, the experience of you, and why are you bringing this up? Well, if you read on to the next chapter, which would be great homework reading, by the way, highly recommend that to you. What is, what is being said? How does Paul pick up on this, right, in the ninth chapter of Romans? And this is, I think, gets at it. Part of God's essence, part of his glory, if you want to know him, if you want to experience his power in your life, if you want to experience his presence, see it transform your life at the essence of who he is, is mercy. You'll see that in chapter 34. You turn the page, and God actually does this. He proclaims his name. He says, the Lord, the Lord, showing mercy and kindness to those who love me. And then he goes on to say, but he will by no means clear the guilty. We'll pick up on that in a moment. You see, what God is doing here is he saying, you want to see my glory? You want to understand who I am? At the essence of who I am is a God so profoundly full of grace that it would blow your mind if you, if you comprehended it. And this, by the way, is um, I think the church's answer to uh, one of the most difficult questions that you all have, right? Which is that why is our, why is our world so screwed up? Right? Why do we have wars? Why do we have all of these horrible things that happen? Why are people allowed to treat each other so poorly? Right? Why are marriages falling apart? Why are family members dying? Why is the economy so unfair so many times? Well, why are all these things happening? And the church's answer to that, uh, predominantly the work of St. Augustine, um, Herman Bavinck, others who have primarily reflected on Augustine, have said this. They've said, God chose to create the world completely good, but with the capability that man could choose evil, that evil would rise from good, is what Augustine says. And he did so in order to reveal who he is, namely gracious. It is his priority 
to reveal to you the depth of his grace, the depth of his mercy, which he says in this passage is absolutely free and completely his prerogative. And uh, Paul will pick up on this in Romans as he uh, reflects on the gospel. God will elaborate on this in the next chapter. I invite you to read that. And we get a sense then for what is happening here, right? Where God says, look, if I go up among you, I'm going to consume you. So I'm not going to do that. And Moses refuses to take no for an answer. He pleads with God. God concedes. He asks for his glory. And God responds by saying, you want my glory? You want to know who I am? This is who I am. And then he has this weird experience that we'll try to figure out of the, covering him in the rock and, and doing all that sorts of things. So what are we to do with this? I'm going to make some application and then try to solve the last part of the passage for you. What are we to do with this? Well, friends, I want to try to continue to counsel you on how to live your lives in such a way that you reject a life apart from God. And that is, I think, the, the primary exhortation of this passage is this. Don't be content to live a life apart from God's actual presence, his actual power. You know, I think it's easy in America to be content with simply having enough money to pay your rent or your mortgage payment, to having relatively healthy bodies, to having, you know, a nice family. Right? Other places in the world, this is not the case. It's often the case here. And the message of the scripture is don't be content with that. Moses could have had the land of milk and honey. But he said, I will not. I will not go without your presence. And some of you, I just want to tell you, right, some of you have been doing that for a long time, just gently. Right? Some of us, including myself, have been doing that for a long time. We've said, you know what? I'm okay with things the way they are. Right? This passage pleads with us to have a different perspective. To say, I'm not okay with things the way they are. I'm not okay living my life apart from your presence. I'm not okay to spend the next 20 years without experiencing the God of Israel in my life, in my power, in his power at work, in my family. I'm just not okay with that. And the first thing, therefore, to do is to become discontent. The second thing this passage uh, exhorts us to is to reject substitutes. You see, what happened was, kind of like, I would, I would venture to argue like you and I often do, Israel said, you know, when God was with us, it was great, right? We had the cloud and the fire to lead us. You know, we saw dead Egyptians floating down the Nile River. That was really cool. We had all these miracles happen. We liked that, but now he's gone. And so we need something else or someone else. Golden calf, you know, emerges from that, and uh, that brings us to where we are today. And in the same way, friends, what I want to encourage you and exhort you to do is, number one, become discontent. Number two, reject substitutes for God's presence and his power. Right? What are you substituting for? You always substitute something. Right? You're always pursuing someone or something. And this passage would say, reject those substitutes. Right? Yes, pour yourself into your career, for example. Be the best you can in your career. Right? But do so as an act of worship to God, not as a way to fill your life and to achieve the land of milk and honey. Right? Yes, be the best parent that you can be. 
Be with your kids. Give them pencils, okay? Right? But do so in the power of God with his presence so that they would experience his presence, not because them uh, passing their grades and doing well in life is the land of milk and honey because it is not. That's the second thing, reject substitutes. The third thing is begin to pray audaciously. And I just wanted, this is probably the hardest thing for you, right? Begin to pray audaciously. One of the most reviving things you can do in your Christian faith is to be really real with God, right? If you read the Psalms, actually, they're a great guide because they are raw, uncensored, right? God, my life sucks, right? And I hate it. I don't want to live this way without your presence. My enemies are having a heyday with me. I need you now, Right? And I also want to tell you, if you don't feel like permission to pray that way, I am a minister of the gospel. I can show you my license and my card. I have been properly examined by the presbytery, and I want to assure you that it is okay to be real with God. It is okay to tell him that you, that you think your circumstances are terrible. It's okay to use that language with him. I'm not going to because that would be a little too far right, in the moment, but I do privately. I want to just encourage you, be real with him, right? Be real. Say, I I don't want to go forward. I don't want to pastor ironworks without your presence. I don't want to just live and exist without your power. I'm not content with the state of our relationship with you. I want something more. I want something better. And God, in Scripture, unequivocally delights to hear his prayers like that. So pray audaciously. Right, And then, um, <clears throat> as we consider this, we're now going to try to answer some of the mystery of the last verse and see where that takes us. You see, it is very mysterious. Why was God hiding Moses? How does that relate to you? What's going on? Um, what's this all about? And God says, look, you can't see my face and live. Um, I'm going to hide you in the cleft of the rock. I'm going to ca- cause all my goodness to pass by. Um, what's going on here? Well, the Apostle Paul will actually tell us what's going on. Uh, if you were to look in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12, this is what Moses says, excuse me, what Paul says about Moses. He says, since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses. We're more bold than Moses, okay? Who would put a veil over his face so the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. He's speaking about chapter 34, by the way. Uh, But their minds were hardened, for to this day when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yet to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and the Spirit of the Lord, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And this is the key verse. Listen, listen to this from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. And we all, with unfailed face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. You see, what, um, what Paul is saying there is that the thing that was hidden from Moses, the face of the Lord, right, 
the glory of God and who would, what, what his glory is in its essence could only be understood, could only be realized in the face of Jesus Christ. You see, the glory of God is precisely linked to his grace that is exercised with perfect justice, right? That's why he says in the next chapter, he says, I will show mercy like you have never seen it before, yet I will not clear the guilty. How's that work? How do you show mercy to someone who's guilty if you're not going to clear them of it? Answer, I will take your sins, I will take your failures, I will take your shame, your sorrow, your sicknesses, and I will put them on the back of my beloved son, Jesus Christ. And he will bear your griefs, he will carry your sorrows, he will be your perfect substitute. It's interesting, we didn't uh, quote it in the worship guide, but in chapter 32, Moses will actually plead. He'll say, please blot me out from your book, but let the people be saved. And God just ignores him, right? He just ignores that offer. Why? Because he was planning to do that, but not with a mere man, but with his son. You see, the glory of God is inextricably tied to his grace that is seen most profoundly in the face of Jesus Christ. So if you want to get reacquainted with him, if you want to become discontent with the way things are, take a fresh look at the person and work of Jesus Christ. We're about to do that as we come to the Lord's table. Let's do that together. Let's not go forward uh, throughout life apart from him. Let us seek him together. Let me pray for us.